Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 393 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Jonathan Edwards speaks with John Greening about Welsh tradition and the impact of Welsh nationalism in poetry, writing about family in the context of truth and fiction, the impact of winning a major poetry prize, and the big four-way pen as the most essential tool in his creative process. The Welsh poet Jonathan Edwards was born in Newport in 1979 and grew up in Cross Keys, where he still lives. He studied English and American literature and was a secondary school English teacher for over a decade. He's particularly committed to the development of other people's writing. He mentors emerging writers as part of Literature Wales and has led workshops at festivals, in universities and in prisons. He's also edited the distinguished and long-established magazine Poetry Wales. Among his diverse writing projects, he's written speeches for the Welsh Assembly Government and articles for The Big Issue. After gaining his MA in writing from the University of Warwick, he quickly came to prominence, winning several awards and a writing bursary. In 2014, his debut collection was published by Seren. My Family and Other Superheroes is described as reflecting a sense of Welsh pop culture and its relation to broader Western culture, history, family and the lives of ordinary people. The collection was not only shortlisted for the Fenton Oldborough First Collection Prize and the Roland Mathias Poetry Award, but was a Wales Book of the Year and winner of the prestigious Costa Poetry Award. This was followed in 2018 by a second collection, Jen, also a People's Choice Wales Book of the Year, and a third, Talk of the Town, is promised soon. In 2020, he was a Gladstone Library Writer-in-Residence, and in the same year he published a selection of the poetry of the supertramp W.H. Davies. His gift anthology of ten poems about work appeared from Candlestick Press in 2021. Jonathan Edwards can be heard reading from his collections on the Poetry Archive. Jonathan, lovely to be here with you in Cross Keys, uh, obviously a very important place for you. Is this where poetry began for you? Well, um, uh, I, sp- I suppose it did in terms of subjects, really. But um, I sp- poetry, I suppose, really started in university for me. So I've got memories of poems from school. So particularly particularly um, R.S. Thomas and Ted Hughes. And um, I think probably a lot of the writing about people and some of the writing about animals comes from those first exposures to poetry. But really it was Warwick University and the writing department at Warwick University um, and um, David Morley and Michael Hulse and... Um, a lot of the other people who were teaching there. And I think um, the thing about that time really was the extent to which it was enabling and confidence building that the poetry suddenly seemed like something that someone from my sort of background could do. So this area has always been the root of the subjects, I think, but then the kind of the the whole notion of poetry being something that something can be done really, I suppose, came through, came through university and education. Mm. So was the... At a fairly early stage, a sense of being part of a Welsh tradition? 
I don't know really. I mean, I think I think um, I mean Dylan Thomas was a writer that I always loved. So I mean, I think um, and I, I suppose really, if you're discovering poetry for the first time in university, and you're in you're in an English university, then then that that kind of is part of your difference or part of your part of your identity that I suppose you want to explore. The I mean, the key anthology really was was the new poetry which. Um, which David and Michael and, and David Kennedy edited. And I can remember, you know, really looking for the Welsh writers in that and finding mm. Tony Curtis and, and, and grasping onto Tony Curtis. I mean, to be honest, I think that the Welshness is something that's developed. I mean, I think I was probably interested initially in in quite a lot of surreal, accessible writers. I mean, writers like Paul Dirk and Jeff Hattersley, who kind of who, who are kind of really important figures in that anthology. And then, of course, you start thinking about, okay, where am I? What are my subjects? You know, okay, there's Dylan Thomas, there's Iris Thomas, there's Owen Shears, uh, there's Gillian Clark, and so and so. So that side of things really growing for me, for mm. sure. That's fascinating to hear that it was that sort of the later new poetry that influenced you. Yes, I've heard yes, somebody yes. talk about the original Alvarez yeah, yeah, new Alvarez, poetry yeah. influencing them. Yeah. Uh, so that that's really interesting. So R.S. Horace Thomas, who was in that Alvarez anthology, I believe, he had a certain exasperation about English culture overwhelming the world. So that that isn't really a part of your makeup, or I, I perhaps detect a few twinklings of that in, in your writing. The occasional bit of it, particularly uh, poems about the reservoir, uh, yeah, elegies about the reservoir that you wrote. Yeah, I mean, R.S. Thomas is hugely important for me. I mean, particularly in terms of in terms of writing about people, you know, and the way that he kind of writes about uh, hill farmers and so on. And then also the way that that kind of tradition of the character sketch is kind of passed down. I mean, it's very much there in Owen Shears. And so, I mean, a hell of a lot of those poems, like, you know, Owen Jones in the first book and a lot, a lot of the stuff that I was just taking the kind of approach that those writers had taken... And and looking at looking at people who live in Risker and who live in Cross Keys and, 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 and trying to take the same sort of approach really. But yeah, I mean the kind of the Welsh nationalist part of it is definitely there. I mean I think um the, the Byron Rogers um uh, biography of R. S. Thomas mm. is fantastic and yes. the the kind of anecdotes about, you know, um uh my beyond Glindor sort of getting in touch with him and kind of hero worshipping him and, and all yes. that stuff like where you know you'll go and give a talk at the Oxford Union and his his first words are in Welsh, you know, and you'll say in Welsh, you know, I'm I'm, I'm not gonna speak in English tonight and then he'll just keep going. <laughs> so the kind of um uh yeah, I mean he, I think he's kind of heroic for, for those sorts of reasons. Mm. And I think um also um a bunch of Welsh historians, so so Jan Morris in particular and John Davis and they're kind of, um, well, actually, the really beautiful way um, in which they write about the kind of history of, uh, of working class descent and class descent, but yes. also kind of also kind of nationalist politics. Mm. And I mean, that 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 sequence about Trewerin, um That's the drowned, uh, yeah, drowned village. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I interviewed one of the people who was involved in the the, the attack on the dam site. So I mean that 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 whole um, uh, aspect of of Welsh history, I mean liter- I mean because of literally what was done, you know, I mean because of the kind of the the kind of forced eviction and the mm. um, the fact that this kind of water water ends up kind of over the border, but then the kind of the symbolic resonance of that event and the so so yeah, I mean I think um, that that kind of Welsh nationalist politics is is very definitely is very definitely there. It was in some ways it was sort of accidental because the um at the point of putting the first book together in particular, I, I sort of 
looked at the manuscript and thought, oh my God, there's all these poems about being Welsh. So it, it was, in some ways it was a surprise. And then of course you start thinking, well, how does this relate to, you know, the the recent Welsh writers that I really admire, mm. like um, like like Stephen Knight, for example, yes. and, and, and that sort of generation of writers. The, the kind of level of Welsh content seemed to be seemed to be different to what was happening immediately before me. So I, I was very conscious of that. Yes. Coming to your, your first book, My Family and Other Superheroes, apart from the tremendous title, uh, family is clearly very important. It's pr- presented quite fancifully in those opening poems. How did the family react to that? They were really fine. I mean, I've... I've um... This is a question that I keep going back and forth about the the kind of the presentation of the family and the the relationship between the book and reality. And you're right. I mean the the the, the fanciful the fanciful nature of that. And I um I mean one thing one thing I'm interested in is the particularly probably particularly with family is the extent to which there's um a relationship between the family that appears on the page and the the real life family. So I always think in particular about about Heaney when I think about this there's a way in which you know I mean if you if you you know went to Ireland in the 60s or something Heaney's father is not going to be the father that we see in the follower there's a difference between the poem and real life in other words but I also think it's kind of short-sighted to um, think that there's no relationship I mean so I've done I've been doing some academic writing recently on kind of presentation of the family in um in, in Welsh poets and, and you know you'll get you'll get editorial feedback like you know well don't talk about the poet's family real life family because this is a poem every poem's a construction and so on and so you can go you can go to that you can go to that extent of, of thinking the, the poem's made up right in the way that a novel will be so people will people will credit novelists with kind of scale and creativity mm. whereas people will assume that a poem is real so I think that I'm constantly aware of of the relationship between between the family on the page and the family in reality, mm. and know and knowing as a writer they're not the same. But also, I think by this point, knowing that most readers will read them as the same. Yes. Um, but then also, I think the other the other thing about family poems being fanciful is that I think um, I think that the crucial thing really for me in writing um, poems is that is that there has to be space for the writer to do something. Um, so so in other words, if you're just kind of replicating reality, then you're going to be bored as a uh, bored mm. as a writer. So the the stuff about um, the stuff about Gregory Peck or the stuff about mm. Evil Knievel or something, mm. in part, is a way of um, having me do something in the poem mm. so so that the act of writing isn't boring. No, you've got to be the evil Knievel in the sense. That's yeah. the thing that struck me about it. I mean, they're wonderful stories and wonderful characters, but that's not enough in the poem. And it's the, it's the sound, which is what I always respond to first, the sound, the music, all the tricks you're doing with... I mean, it's, it's very Welsh in that respect. It, I can hear you know, the sort of thing that Vernon Watkins does, a poet I admire, you know, the echoes of one word with another and fa- fancy line breaks, all of which one might miss because there's so much that's interesting in narrative and character, which are the, sort of the novelist's gifts. So that collection, how did you go about organising? It's in four parts, isn't it, that mm. first collection? They did, did seem to have a distinct character to them, each of those four parts. Yeah, I mean, I think I think really what I ended up with because there was, I mean, there was there was basically sort of ten years after university of really just writing and really, I mean, really the goal was the goal was to get a poem in a magazine. So I was really trying to I was really trying to write single poems for magazines and competitions and and try and build towards a collection in that way. 
So I suppose really what I ended up with was a, was a, was a quite sort of messy arrangement of individual poems because that was really how they'd been written. And then thinking about well, okay, how does this work? How do these go together? Yes. So that, so they they ended up with these kind of loose arrangement of this this family poems and then the second section this poems about Wales and then this kind of relationship poems. And then the fourth section is really a mis, mis, miscellany really really of um, of things that didn't go in any of the other sections. <laughs> yes. um, right. So I mean I, I I kind of get um I kind of get attracted by the the collections which are concept albums you know which kind of kind <laughs> of hits one theme repeatedly mm-hmm. but then I'm never quite brave enough to commit to one idea because I kind of I get worried well what if people don't like that one idea or something like that so I kind of the the four sections are sort of an attempt to have your cake and eat it you know of kind of of kind of having the benefits of sequence building but mm. then but then not hopefully not just hammering one subject to death, you know. And there seem to be some sort of con- links between that book and the, the following book. There was one that seems to carry on, uh, the, the bloke in the coffee shop in the one, and then and then the second book, uh, you've got the, is it the girl and, and the, the coffee shop? So there, and there are one, two other things. I thought there's a, a real sense of development, which is lovely to see, actually. I mean, not not every poet has that chance to, I mean, you get it with Heaney and Hughes, but that sense of one one collection shaping the next collection, I love that. Um, so again, I mean that, that was a real balancing act because the um, I mean because the because the the first the first collection did well. You're then in a position of like, well, okay, people like this this sort of thing. So then, um, but then also, uh, you know, you want to develop as a writer. So there's yes. a real there's a real balancing act of um, you know not um, not wanting to kind of entirely reinvent yourself and yet. Not wanting to do exactly the same thing again, mm. so that that's a that's a real balance, I think. Mm. Yes, I was struck by the ju- use of juxtaposition in the first book. Then you've got the nun on a bicycle and Raskolnikov in Ebba Vale. You, you, you like those kinds of sort of shot juxtapositions. There's that poem, the restaurant where I am the maitre d' and my chef is the unconscious. I just wondered if that was, a, in a sense, a statement about how poetry works for you. Uh, could you tell us a bit about that poem? Because not everybody will know it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Yeah, so it's a kind of, I suppose, it's a manifesto poem, really. Yes. I mean, it's, um, and I mean, actually, the way that that was, the way that that poem was written, and this is true of a, a few poems in the first book, that it, it basically that phrase was in a page of automatic writing. So, so mm. particularly with the first book, I did a hell of a lot of automatic writing to generate the poems. And there's another poem in that book uh, about a bookcase, and those titles were in a page of automatic writing. So um, I simply took it and then the act of writing the poem was about explaining that phrase to myself, really. But yeah, I mean, I can remember there was also, at the time, there was was one of these terrible um, celebrity... um, Cooking shows and, and Bruce Grobler was one of the was one of the contestants who's a big hero from childhood. So I think yeah. that worked its way in some way. <laughs> but I think I mean I think that that poem is 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 about um, really the the kind of the wildness of the imagination and the places you can get to in the, mm. those surreal those surreal um, poems. But it's also I think that that poem about the frustrations of um, trying to regulate or manage the creation of a poem in a way that's in a way that's kind of impossible, you know, and then the, the poem actually coming when 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 you let go of all of that. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, no, but yeah, definitely, it's a, it's a kind of manifesto, really, that poem. Automatic writing, that's something Yeats used to do, automatic writing. Is Yeats an important influence on you? 
I got that really from um, Thomas Lux. Um, oh, yeah. That, um, but yeah, no, I was just reading that. Um, I was reading some of um, Muldoon's Oxford lectures and he talks about Yeats and automatic writing. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I, I got it really from, I think uh, Thomas Lux was, was really very, very disciplined with it, you know, and he'd do mm. it kind of every day and he'd combine two or three pages of automatic writing and shape them and, 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 and do what do what needed to be done. Who, how did you discover Thomas Lux? Because he's not that well known over here. I think Blood X did a selection of his work, didn't they? Yeah, I think that was really through through Staying Alive. Through So Staying Alive was really huge for me. I mean, I, I The Blood X anthology, yeah, yes. Yeah. I discovered a hell of a lot of writers and um, through that anthology. And um, I mean, then it was probably, I, I think it was Wife Hits Moose, the Thomas Lux poem, which was in Staying Alive, which mm. I just thought, oh my God, this is amazing. Mm. And um, and then just kind of um, then pursued everything that he that, that that he'd written. Yes, I'm interested in other poets that have been influenced. And I, I see some. That there's um, I thought of James Merrill and your and and Kavafi did of your days of 1995 and yeah. days of 2005. Yeah. And also there's one called Rilke at War. Um, yeah. Uh, I wonder if he was an important poet for you because that that. In the in the collection that precedes a group of animal poems, yeah. which which Rilke himself uh, famously did. Did say a bit about, about about that poem Rilke at War and 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 the poems that follow it, didn't he? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. He was he was a really really um, important writer for me. I mean, uh, the new poems basically. So so yeah. everything that he does in the new poems, the animal poems in the new poems, and uh, um, yeah, the the way that he writes there. I, I the, love that they poem. were. If I'm right in remembering, they were the poems where he just determined just to look at things and yeah. really get down to the physicality of actual things and look yeah. closely at, at, at just ordinary objects. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And the um, there's the um, I mean the 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 thing I always um, thing I always say is um, which I found in 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 uh, Greta Stoddart um, talks about it in one of her readings on the the poetry archive where Rodan told Rilke, you know, go to the zoo. If you've got kind of a problem writing a poem, go to the zoo and look at the animals for a couple of hours and just stand in front of the... And I, I very much just kind of completely um, swallowed that. Mm. But that, that poem, Rilke at War, is kind of interesting because um, it basically comes from non-fiction. So it comes from um, one, of the, one of the Rilke biographies. I'm not, not quite sure which one, to be honest. I've read a couple, mm. but, but it's an incident which is in Rilke's biography and um i do i do quite a lot of that there's a whole there's a whole bunch of of non-fiction poems i mean there's one about coleridge in the second book um there's what the one um the one which came out in long poem magazine about oscar wilde but they're really about they're really about reading non-fiction and a lot of the pop culture poems about kirk cobain and those they're, they're quite often about reading non-fiction and and People are often surprised at this, but books are often yeah. <laughs> the great stimulus for yeah. poems, aren't they? It's not very, very romantic, probably, but a book, a non-fiction book, I certainly find that's a, that's a great Definitely. stimulus. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. And those animal poems that follow the real fascinated me. Again, it was for the sounds, and you just seem to be a bit like Les Murray, actually, with his, his translations for the natural world, relishing the, the sound of the language. Um, you don't quite go inside their heads as he does, but uh, we had a seal, hippo, flamingos, and then cheerleaders, which I love. It's like the car- it reminds me of Samson's Carnival of the Animals, where he has all the animals, and then he brings in pianists at the end as one of the animals. You know, it's the same sort of joke, really. And that's what I love about the, your books, that there's that sense of fun, having fun. The books are a delight to read, but they're not trivial. Not all the subjects are light, and uh, there's a great depth in them, but 
You're always aware of your audience. What is your body but the verb to wallow? You're saying one of those poems about the hippopotamus, I think. So that first collection had huge success. It won the Costa Prize, which is which is extraordinary. And do prizes make any difference to anything? Obviously, there's a bit of money, but it helps. But it... Um, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it made, it made I mean it made a huge difference in 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 all sorts of ways. Basically, I mean the the and the, I mean the point at which that came. So the um, I mean, the book had basically been out for a year by that point, so it came out in the in the February, and there was there was there was quite a long time of of really not much happening, and you know, going going to kind of travelling everywhere to give a reading to three people and all that sort of stuff, <laughs> all of the all of the lovely stuff actually that that poetry does. Yes. So um, you know, it was just great when that happened, and the kind of the 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 radio and the TV and the the book the book really sold. So. Definitely makes a difference. I think that um, also that there there probably are specific difficulties. I suspect in terms of um, a Welsh writer with a Welsh publisher developing an audience outside of Wales. I think that that's probably so. So there's when you get that kind of recognition from outside of Wales and elsewhere in the UK, that that's really really great. But it is. I mean, the other thing is that I mean, when that happens, you're also kind of intensely aware of um other other writers in wales who who published you know in similar period who are, in truth have probably 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 written a much better, better book than you have who don't get that luck so the yes. the kind of the downside of the of prizes is very much the um the kind of lottery of it and the yeah. the, the, the 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 books that the books that get overlooked yeah. for you know yeah. for for the for, for the reasons of luck basically so Four years later, Jen, again, a wonderful title. I'd say the second novel is difficult. It was the second collection. <laughs> you were talking a bit about it earlier, didn't you? But it doesn't feel like a, a, a book that, that was a difficult birth. But um, is it different? You wanted it to be different, you said. But is it? what is the new direction there, would you say? Well, I don't know, really. Yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was a kind of balancing act. I mean, I think, I think well, among things... Among things I was keen to try is to try try and be more ambitious in some way. So I think that there are, I think that there are there are there are more um, longer poems. So you know the poem about Kurt Cobain, for example, is more sustained than I probably would have been with that sort of idea in mm. the first book. There's a poem called Autumn Song, which is quite mm. intricate formally, and is is the sort of thing that um, I mean, it's the sort of thing that I've always tried, but it's um, sort of scattered across the page, isn't it? The actual layout on the page, yeah, is very yeah, sort of William yeah, Carlos yeah. Williamsish or something. But, yeah. uh, so that was a deliberate attempt to, to to break out of traditional forms, or what, what was well, it? Well, well, basically, I mean, it's that. Um, so, I mean, I, I suspect probably one of the reasons why I really loved Thomas Lux when I discovered him was because. I mean, when I really, really first started with poetry, I mean, the the, the people I was reading were Tom Gunn and Glyn Maxwell, mm. and uh, yeah, I mean, and even now, I mean, Auden is really big for me. So, and and Hopkins in particular. I mean, I'm 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 hugely keen on Hopkins. So that kind of that kind of notion of that that kind of um, really very strong um, uh, rhythmic forms, stanza forms, those sorts of things. Which I've always written in, um, right, right from the start. Um, so, so I think that that's probably the most ambitious poem I've written in that that sort of style. Autumn, or, autumn song, yeah, yeah. Although yeah. yeah. sustainers as well, which are, are pretty tricky to to bring off. You said in one another interview, I think you you, you admired the vernacular energy of 
train spotting, things like that. There's a kind of vernacular energy in your writing. Um, and the tone, you seem to... utterly convincing tone. Is that something you work hard at, or something you just have to get yourself into the zone for, for, for finding the right voice and tone, or what? So I think, basically, really important to me in terms of the, the kind of writing process is reading the poem aloud. Mm. So, so that's really the point at which um, I know that a poem might be a poem. So if, if the... I mean... Most of the time, most of the things I, I write remain dead things on the page and they never really kind of get up and announce themselves and want to be want to be spoken. But if the poem is going to be a poem, there'll be a point in the writing at which um, at which I'm, I'm literally saying that poem aloud into an empty room. And at that point, I kind of know it's a poem. And that does that does a hell of a lot in kind of generating generating the kind of sounds that you were mentioning and the the the, the rhythms but also yes. kind of getting you to, to to kind of an ending that might work um so i do tend i do really tend to think of a poem as essentially essentially a spoken act and what what happens on the page to be really a script you know uh, well of, do, have you written plays or, or masks something like that such as Vernon watkins did i mean have you have you no, it I sounds mean, as though perhaps you could. Yeah, I mean the um, so so basically um, plays were really what I wanted to do, um, mm. and when I the the year that I got into poetry at Warwick, the I was down I was down to do a playwriting course, mm. and the, the playwriting tutor was on sabbatical, so the course didn't run. So I ended up in the poetry, mm. which had been my second choice, you know, module. Mm. Uh, and the um, I mean the furthest I got, I, I wrote a really terrible um, uh, one act. Um, black comedy about about a suicide bomber when I was in university and there was it was played it was played over the um the student student radio in the students union which was quite a surreal experience at sort of three o'clock in the afternoon but um yeah no I mean I think um it's definitely something I'd be interested in I'm I'm kind of I mean although this might not be apparent from the um the character sketches but I'm not really good at kind of um creating characters in fiction I think the poems are quite good at probably observing people but I don't know I don't know I I do tend to find it difficult to kind of when I've tried fiction and I've tried things like this the um the ability to create characters I I don't find easy you could probably do a kind of undermilk wood for Krosky you haven't really (laughs) mentioned Dylan Thomas have we whether he's an influence or he's fairly uh perhaps he's one of those poets that isn't so much of an influence he's just there is he Dylan Thomas (laughs) this day yeah, I mean, I think uh, I mean I'm just kind of obsessed. Uh, Dylan Thomas is the, is the biggest thing, but the um... so he, so he is. Oh yeah, yeah. He's like he's not that you've just ignored him. He's there, and you, you, you... yeah, no. I mean, he's it for me. I mean, he's right. just. Um, yeah. But I think I mean I think um, I mean of course the difficulty with Tom, Thomas is that his his poetic voice is so distinctive. Yes, that, yes. Um, like Ted Hughes, come, actually, a similar dangerous influence. If you're not, yeah, him. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think um, I think in some ways what's been most important with him is actually his stories. So Portrait of the Artist as a Young Dog and the humour in those stories and the yeah the the voice um, the voices of those stories and um, yeah so the the world that he creates. But no, I mean he's a writer. I'm I'm just kind of um, I'm just kind of obsessed with yeah. Mm. He's a real hero. Well. By the time this interview goes out, there may be this third collection, which is provisionally titled Talk of the Town, you said. 
is that going to be very different? Uh, you, I think you mentioned me in the email there were going to be more monologues. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, I think it's, it's recognisably sort of a development of the of the of the first two books. And I think, I mean, I suppose when you get to the third collection, you start thinking more consciously about about the sweep of the book and mm. and the, what what can be done with a what what can be done with a collection more than what can be done with an individual poem. So there's a kind of um, there's an extended sequence about my grandfather, my mm. um, my mother's father, um, which which kind of sustains that that interest in family. But it's an attempt really to kind of to spend some time with one character really across um, across a whole sequence. Uh, and I mean, he's a fascinating character because he kind of he, he died when I was about five. Uh, so um, there's. I've got these kind of sense impressions, but there's a hell of a lot of kind of mystery and enigma. So there's yes. there's, there's place to um, kind of imagine imagine certain things into. And I mean, he's a kind of um, representative working class valleys man of his era. So you know, the working men's club, the factory, and all all of that sort of world. So now you've talking work. You've edited an anthology of poems about work. Every work is, a, is an important theme in your, in your in your writing. So this is the new book. Um, just tell us a bit, because we haven't really talked about how you set about writing a poem. I seem to remember an anecdote about a, a, a band you were in and a drummer's candle that I read or heard of somewhere. <laughs> I can't quite remember the details. Yeah, I mean, the um, the town hall, which is a few miles up the road, um, uh, this is when I was a teenager and I was in a band. We rehearsed in that town hall, but another band rehearsed in that town hall who ended up burning down the town hall. So there's actually just a, just a, just a piece of land there where the town hall was. But ba- I mean, basically, the they were quite successful, and they they were far more successful than we are because they they had more songs. So they had kind of, you know, by the time they recorded their first album, they had two hundred songs. So they the and I've always I've always been like that. So so I'll um, I mean I used to say that the ratio is kind of right a thousand to keep one. You know, I mean I, I don't I don't think that's a million miles off. But the um, and I mean, I, it's been really interesting. Some of the kind of the, the work that I've done with 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 writers recently, because I, I realised that I'm, I thought everyone was like this, but but it turns out it's it, a, a lot of writers simply write one poem and keep that one poem, and there, there's a hell of a lot more going on in terms of the gestation. Mm. Whereas for me, it's really write lots of poems and keep a very very small percentage. Yeah, the the writing process tends to be um, quite swift, so it'll um, it'll happen reasonably swiftly. But there'll be a lot of so it's all handwritten, so a lot mm. of handwritten drafts um, in the pen first or pencil, pen. Mm. And so I'm really big on the four way pen, which is why uh, there are yeah. so many of them. I'm very <laughs> pleased with a big four way pen. And what so it happens with like um, because the drafting is happening so fast. The kind of um, keeping one version of the developing poem because it's kind of going zoom 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 zoom. Yes. So kind of keeping one de- one version of the developing poem in one ink, and then all of the alternate because you've also got kind of seven different versions mm. of a line in yeah. your head for that. So the kind of the the different coloured inks on a practical level, I just couldn't couldn't be without really. Sounds unique, actually. <laughs> now you talk about just being remembered for one poem, or getting one poem right. What is this life if full of care? We have no time to stand and stare. Is a, a lines my mother used to quote to me. And that's W. H. Davis, perhaps the one poem that many people remember of, of his. And you've edited a, a small mm. selection of his work. Just tell us what led to that. 
Well, I mean, basically, I mean, basically, I was asked to. I mean, that was that was the that was the kind of impetus. But I mean, it was a local connection for you, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, he's in Newport, so um, and there's, um, I mean, there's actually there's a statue of him. I mean, some of the cafes that I write in in Newport, there's a statue of him, which I mean is this kind of surrealist artwork. So I didn't even know it was W.H. Davis for a long time. But, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, I mean, there is that about him, that he be, that poem, Leisure, um, so everyone thinks W.H. Davis, Leisure, or, or, you know, Autobiography of a Super Trump. I mean, his prose gets really well known. Mm. But the thing, that I, the thing that I was really interested in with him are all of those kind of gritty social realist Again, character portraits. I mean, you you can the, the, you know it's not it's not impossible to see a relationship with R.S. Thomas there. The mm. the so you know when he's writing those poems about living in living in doss houses basically, and yeah. you know this kind of cast of cast of kind of alcoholics and you know um, all sorts of all sorts of kind of characters that he was coming up against in his daily life. So that was really the part of his writing that that I found most engaging because I think um I think he does certainly as a poet I mean not so much in prose but certainly as a poet there is a kind of um perception of him as essentially a kind of you know a nice a nice nature writer and he does have that but the 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 gritty realism of of some of his poems I think is I think is really 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 interesting Extraordinary humanity of the poems. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, a real yeah. sense, quite unusual for its time, really. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a lovely anthology. The other thing you told me that you've been working on is a collection of um, Sam Adams' uh, uh, Letters from Wales, which have been appearing in peer review for goodness knows how many decades. Uh, tell us a bit about that. That, that may be out by the time this interview is broadcast. Yeah, so I, I think this is a really interesting project. And Sam again is a is a local writer. He's in he's in Killian, So, oh, yeah. and I think um, I think um, I mean among the things that are really interesting about those letters, letters from Wales columns is that there's a concerted attempt there to kind of represent Wales to to a readership primarily outside of Wales. So you know the you know I think I suppose like like any small country, you know, kind of kind of breaking Welsh writing into other parts of the UK, um, uh, you know, is not always easy. So, so I think that that, that column has been quite an important thing. And I think, I mean, it's, it's, those letters are brilliant in all sorts of ways. I mean, they're brilliant on Welsh writers. Um, uh, you know, I mean, some of them are kind of wonderful capsule essays on to introduce kind of Welsh writers to, mm. to a wider readership. But they're wonderful on history, actually, and kind of the history of mining. And, you know, again, Sam writes beautifully about his family. There are some really moving, moving letters about family. But then also he's really, really very astute and um, really quite brave and quite honest in terms of how he talks about the literary scene in Wales. You know, um, uh, he celebrates what's good, but but he's also kind of... He's also brave enough to say when things need improvement, and mm. I think I think that that's I think that that's really really important. So, so yeah, no, it's been it's been fantastic. Well, to, we look to forward to, to, to reading that. Do you have one poem that you regard as your signature piece? A bit like Heaney had digging, and I suppose uh, Douglas Dunn had something like Terry Street. But what? So I mean, I don't I don't, I don't know if it's a signature piece, but the the poem that I always the poem that I always mention is is the one about the hippo actually, which you were referring oh, to, right, yeah. and th- I mean that's I of all my poems that that's that's my favourite one, and I don't entirely know why. I think I think probably in some ways because it it wasn't it wasn't super difficult to write. It kind of, I mean that poem was almost like 
you get this sometimes, don't you? Whereas you mm. feel as though the poem already exists and it's yep. just saying itself to you, yeah. you know, and that, yeah. that was the experience with that. And I, was I, think, th- I was thinking of Stravinsky, talking about the right of spring, he was the vessel through which it came. You know, it's, it's like that sometimes, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Um, so that's your right of spring, maybe. <laughs> do you have a favourite quotation about poetry? I do. Um, uh, now, it's a James Tate quotation, and I'm not oh. going to be able to remember it word for word, but basically, it's a quotation about um, wanting to be poetry to be funny, but also wanting to break people's hearts. So, wanting poetry to to make people laugh, um, uh, but also have emotional resonance. Um, and I'm not going to be able to remember it word yeah. for word, but that yeah. that's basically the that's basically the punch of it. Yeah. And what what are your interests other than poetry? Oh, well, um, I suppose, really, I mean, the things which are in the poem. So, I mean, Wales and history and Welsh history and family, of course, and football. I'm huge on football, which is why I end up writing about that. And and animals, really. I mean, so the, the kind of things that are in the poems, I mean, that that's really, that's, that, that's really it, yeah. And what advice would you give to someone setting out as a poet? Well, basically to keep at it. I mean, I know that. I mean, that's that. That's the that's the boring advice. But the. I mean, the. Um. I mean, that's really the advice that I was given by by. I mean, by David Morley and then by other people like Hugo Williams, and the. That's really the advice that that matters. I mean, you 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 can only really keep at it and keep at it and um, I mean sometimes it's not easy because it goes badly almost all of the time you know most <laughs> days most days you set out to write a poem you don't get one written um, but it will give back um, it will give back that day when you're not expecting it to so I don't I don't think there's anything else I mean the, the I mean I, I can remember when David Morley gave me that advice you know he's sort of apologetic and you know I'm sorry so I'm sorry this isn't more exciting <laughs> but that's that's really I think I think that that's really the crucial thing that you just keep going yes Jonathan Edwards it's been a great pleasure to talk to you and I hope we meet again soon thank you so much that was Jonathan Edwards in conversation with John Greening You can find out more about Jonathan on the RLF website. And that concludes episode 393, which was recorded by John Greening and produced by Kona McPhee. Coming up in episode 394, in Poetry Break, Lawrence Sale and Julia Copas discuss classic poems by Emily Dickinson. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.